welcome to another episode of Design to Connect. Today, we're very, very excited to have a very interesting and meaningful conversation with the two co-founders of Out of Architecture, Jake Rudin and Aaron Pellegrino. And I apologize if I said that or I mispronounced that. Perfect. No, thanks to Deal for having us on. Welcome. Uh, welcome, Jake, and welcome, Erin. We are really and genuinely happy to have you here both uh, today, and we are really, really looking forward to our conversation. But before we start, we just wanted to give a very brief introduction of who you both are to our audience. So I will start with Jake. Uh, Jake, you are a strategic thinker and designer. You are the senior manager at Adidas, leading the teams of computational designs, digital technologies, and pattern engineering. You have long years of experience in building teams from the ground. And mentioning that, you're one of the co-founders of Out of Architecture, which is a career consulting firm helping designers to apply their incredible talents in an untraditional way. Uh, what an amazing thing to do. Thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Thank you. What a lovely introduction. All right. Well, I guess now it's uh, time to introduce Erin. Erin, you're also a strategist thinker. You're a designer and a registered architect. You have a decade of experience in the fields of design, business development, and creative consulting. You also have an experience as an instructor at numerous schools of design and architectural universities, including Harvard and Cornell. You're the founder and principal of Matter, a design firm that solves problems that tend from the brand and digital experience to the built environment. And you're also the co-founder of Out of Architecture. Thank you so much for being with us today. And if you can tell us how you're feeling and where are we connecting with you from today? Um, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you so much for, for the intro as well. Um, I'm feeling pretty good uh, with the exception of we've got um, some, some interesting weather here in New York and I have a cat who really wants to be on this podcast as well. So sorry about that if you no happen to hear him. Um, but no, we're, we're super excited and uh, thanks so much for the invite. Thank you. Yeah. Feeling very, very thankful to, to have this opportunity to have such an international conversation. We were just saying before we uh, hit the start button that, you know, we're in four absolutely different locations, uh, Italy, Toronto, New York, and Portland. Um, and yet, you know, we're having this, uh, this really wonderful opportunity to chat. So um, feeling very excited and uh, in need of some coffee. So uh, you'll, you'll see me partake in that uh, throughout the podcast. <laughs> Don't worry, I think we're all doing the same thing. And we're very, very, very interested um, and excited to actually be connecting, just like you said, like from four completely different regions. And just hearing your bios makes us even more excited to how this conversation is going to flow. So um, it's really interesting that both of your both of your careers are, or like your educational background is in design, but you didn't really you're not doing it in the linear way that we were taught on how to do architecture and design. So we're very excited to start questioning you and bombarding you with questions. So get ready. <laughs> All right, game, so, let's go. <laughs> so uh, before we go into the details of art architecture, which we are really, really excited about to go to, uh, I was 
thinking uh, to myself that when I hear the phrase out of architecture and reflect on the reasons that makes me want to get out of this industry and I put in the front of this, uh, not considering the issues with the mainstream architecture and how it's affecting the environment and humanity, the two main things that would make me really want to get out of architecture would be the crazy working hours and let's say the low payments. So we thought that it would be really interesting to start our conversation of today uh, with a focus on unpaid internships. And uh, we wanted to ask you, how do you feel about that? Because we think that the concept of unpaid internships has become such a norm, especially in architectural world, that it is even hard to question it in the first place. And even we as juniors uh, sometimes don't see the value in ourselves to be even paid. So we wanted to ask your thoughts about unpaid internships. Uh, what do you think are the negative effects uh, of working without being paid? And how can we actually address this issue in an ethical way without calling out certain companies? And yeah, so those are some questions that we had. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously it's a it's a ubiquitous problem, and while architecture is not the only field that suffers from it, um, it's obviously close to to our minds and our hearts. And I think both Jake and I have participated in unpaid internships um, <clears throat> for really probably lack of knowing any better at the time. For me, I think the the answer to that question really comes first from this idea that when you're a creative person, um, when you're really passionate about what you do, you don't really see it as work or you don't immediately see it as work. It's almost as though, man, I'm so grateful to be able to, to do this or to work on this, that I have this opportunity. Now, I don't think there's inherently anything wrong with that. Loving what you do, having a passion for what you do um, is a gift, right? And if you're able to do that, then that's absolutely fantastic. However, I do think that whether it be the academy or whether it be um, the mentorship culture, the apprentice-like culture of, of architecture, or just a deeply ingrained problem within the discipline that we find ourselves in and many other creative disciplines, that it becomes you know, something that you are numb to and that it becomes okay and normalized, right, is the word I'm looking for. And the problem with that is you have now a broken system where the most passionate people, the people who really love what they do and are giving their heart and soul to it, do not expect that value to be acknowledged, at least not in a monetary way. Um, Jake and I talk about different forms of value um, and different ways in which you're, let's say, credited for that. And it's not always monetary. And, you know, as a student, you can get a really positive critique having stayed up for, you know, days on end to produce work that was fantastic and may have been fantastic before you stayed up that long. However, I think this broken sort of system or broken culture where you don't start to look at the value that you bring as something that is justifiable in and of itself for compensation is inherently a problem. Um, how we fix it, I think, is a much larger conversation and it's not something that can happen neither from the top down nor the bottom up, but I do think it stems from this relationship that we have to work and the fact that it aligns with something that we are so passionate about that it almost feels like money is a bonus, but it's not because money is what makes the world go round, whether you like it or not. Very true. 
I, I've been noticing that lately a lot. Like the more I talk to people, the more I realize that it's very unfortunate how we always associate the creative industry as an industry that's not going to expand or like it's not going to get you anywhere in life. So if you're an artist, you're a creative designer, you always hear that, oh, like go get another job or figure something out because this is not going to get you anywhere. And it, it, it bothers me to, to feel that, that we are we feel that way. And I just question these things to understand how we can possibly change the narrative. Um, I don't know if Jake, you would like to add anything to that before um, we ask another question, which yeah, is also absolutely. in relation to that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, uh, if this is, you know, where you'll be leading, but, um, you know, as the one male on a podcast with three incredibly strong females, I, I take it as my personal self-effacing responsibility to say that like taking an unpaid internship is a point of privilege and being able to step into a job and say, I'm willing to not accept money. You know, I'm willing to, to do this work for, for the accolades, because I know that someone behind me will support me through that um, is uh, an incredibly difficult modern position to be in when we're challenging the industry to become more diverse, more welcoming, more inclusive. And um, actually something that Aaron and I speak about frequently um, comes from uh, an incredible professor of ours, uh, Dr. Mary Woods. And she, she spoke about the profession of architecture as being the gentleman's profession. Uh, and historically, coming from this opportunity that very wealthy, well-to-do men were able to travel the world, were able to pay you know, their fees to go to these exotic locations. Um, you know, uh, ours who believe it or not, like, you know, people flock to Italy and, and consider it an exotic location. So I think, uh, you know, you're in a great spot, but, um, you know, to travel the world on the grand tour and to see all of these buildings and to become trained as an architect, it, it was never meant to be, uh, you know, a paid profession. It was a profession of luxury and it was really something where, um, the late nights, the long hours were supported in the background by, you know, by house staff, by wealth, by family money. Um, and that, you know, it exists in many forms today still, but people question why, you know, in the United States, we have some absurdly low number of registered Black architects, right? It could be, I don't know, Aaron, what is it, like 500 uh, yeah, just broke, her. just broke 500 uh, female wow. black architects in the United States. Female. Yeah, female. Um, and, and I think, you know, those, um, the numbers, regardless of, you know, uh, whether or not I'm 100% accurate on them, they reflect, uh, you know, out of the hundreds of thousands of registered architects that we're not doing a good job in creating mm -hmm. a space for people to come into. Um, and I guess the other you know, the other thing that I hear frequently is from, from businesses that, well, you know, interns aren't valuable. And that's the justification that, that we sort of um, have laid upon us. And I think as young architects and young architecture students, we need some other voice telling us that there is value in these skills before we ever get to 
the door of the industry and have to stand up and and say no, because I think a lot of people have trouble doing that. Um, and Aaron and I have been really fortunate to be in a position where, uh, at least during the time of, um, I don't know, I was going to say COVID, but let's call it 2020, because we're still in the time of COVID, <laughs> yeah. um, that we were able to kind of like turn off um, billing for a while and just support young architects and designers that came to us with, with questions. And it was just so wonderful to be able to tell someone, you know, point to another industry and say, look, your, your creative suite values, you know, your creative suite skills, those are, those are valuable in tech. They're valuable in startup. They're, they're valuable all over the place. And it doesn't have to be that you're changing your title to be a graphic designer. You just need to be able to pull yourself out of just the noun of, of being an architect only. And I mm -hmm. think that's something where as soon as you remove yourself from that moniker, you have all kinds of value. You know, your skills are CEO level skills in so many ways. And yet we just consider ourselves design interns. So that, that really is, is probably the, the core of the problem, I think. No, it's so true. I feel like it's engraved in our brains and system like that, you know, just being an architect or a designer is just one way that we forget that how multi task or like the skills that we have, how like we have a varied uh, skills that can be transformable from one industry to another. Um, and I'm very glad that you touched based on that because it makes me, it um, triggers a lot of questions that I would like to ask. But before we move forward, um, before I ask you that, I'm, I'm curious to see your intake or your thoughts on how we can change the narrative um, when it comes to the overwork or the over hours. I feel like with us architects or like designers, we romanticize the idea of, um, you know, working late hours and um, working overtime. And we actually, I feel like we convince ourselves that we're enjoying this because it's part of our lifestyles that makes us, you know, like, oh, wow, we worked extra amount of hours for this project. But we are starting to realize more and more and more how very unhealthy that pattern is. Um, and I would like to get your intake on that. Like, what? how do you feel like first we can change the narrative to feel, to make us understand that this is not a healthy lifestyle that we've um, encountered? Like, we literally took how we were we behaved in school and in university into our work, into our jobs. So what's your input on that? I mean, I think there's a lot of really important points you bring up and it's, I think there are a lot of different ways to attack the problem and a lot of different ways to interrogate why it is like this. Um, one of the things you bring up is really just an observ observation of inefficiencies. Um, and yes, you're correct. Those inefficiencies are uh, deeply ingrained in you when you go to school. Um, at least for me, I went to architecture school straight, straight out of high school. So it was an undergraduate degree, which meant I was 17 when I started architecture school. I'm a teenager, right? I happen to be on the young side of um, the cutoff date. And so from, you know, for the next five years within that degree, it's sink or swim on learning how to become an architect, learning how to become an adult, right? And you're doing this all in the design methodology, right? The case study method, the does guess and check, iterative process. And that means that you have to essentially learn things the hard way, right? Which is to toil, fail a lot, 
and then become better over time. Now, I don't think there's, I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. However, one of the things that seeks to help inefficiencies is mentorship, good mentorship, someone coming along and saying, there's a better way to do this. And in you know the better and the best moments of architecture school, there's a lot of that. Jake and I both served as teaching associates um, from our first year onward, both in the um, in our fabrication studio as well as in various courses. And when you had great TAs and great professors who could help you, it was like someone bestowed upon you this wonderful idea, right? And that only comes through through talking and sharing process and and a sharing of knowledge, right? Now. However, that inefficiency extends into the profession and extends into the business of architecture, right? So you, you mentioned in our introductions that, you know, Jake and I are both interested in architecture as well as in business, right? And what I think was hugely revealing to me was I was in a class um, during my graduate degree where the chair of the department of that school said that the people that worked for him were useless to him after three years. He wanted new people, he wanted new talent, new ideas, and he didn't care how long it took them to make the things that he wanted. He just wanted new and fresh ideas. And that to me is the opposite of fostering a culture where you take you know, good input, so let's say good talent, mm -hmm. and work towards becoming more and more efficient at it so that you can produce, let's say in the case of client facing architecture, a product that has value and is delivered within the parameters upon which that contract is, is understood. Now that is one very small example, but for me, it clued me into, you know, and this I think goes back to Jake's comments about, you know, the idea of the gentleman's profession, but I don't think at the individual level, at the school level, at the professional level, at the level of the discipline. I don't think we value finding ways to make ourselves more efficient and more of an operator within society so that we can convey the value that we deserve, either from a monetary perspective or even just think about the value of time. If, if a client or a professor were to give you an extra week to do something, right? The, the value of, of, let's say, a comfort of working you know, in a different or a, um, a more flexible sort of way. Now, granted, we all just are still going through COVID. And I think a lot of people are recognizing the value in, in giving your people, whether they're your students, in the case of, for me, I have both students and I have employees, um, and also yourself, give yourself more time. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to necessarily stay up three days in a row to produce the, what you're looking to produce. But we have this sort of culture of inefficiency at every level that somehow that inefficiency will make you the best possible architect. And I think, you know, both professionally, that's incredibly toxic, and also personally. You know, um, I'm a big advocate of therapy. And if I were to tell my, you know, therapist that I am, you know, constantly doing something, putting the gas down 24 seven, at some point he's going to say to me like, you're hitting your head against the wall and it's not working. Yeah. Stop, reevaluate, right? <laughs> so I think it starts for me with this idea of inefficiency. Um, there's also all these other ideas around things like insecurity and good mentors and good bosses versus bad. But for me, it, it start, starts with this, this inefficiency, which comes from an absolute love for what you do and almost a manic obsession with what you do. Um, and I'm very guilty of this. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, stones and glass houses, but yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's why I'm like, I, I ask these questions because I'm also at fault at that, right? I feel like I become so addicted to what I do and I'm like, I'm very passionate at what I do that it's taking over my life in a very unhealthy way. Um, but I, I would like, I feel like it's also the idea that we associate everything with the dollar value as well is an issue because time equal money. And I feel like we hear that a lot. And I feel like, how is that possible that we're trying to change our idea around that money equal, like time equal money or money equal time? Because then if we're asking the client to extend or give us um, a week extra, we're always going to be like, no, like, you know, who's, who's going to be paying that extra week worth of money? So I feel that's that's where it's um it, it gets confusing for me. I don't know if that made sense, but <laughs> yeah, I I really have a problem with um speaking to architects about the way that they bill or value themselves. And you know, there's there's many aspects of time. There's time you spend being productive, but there's also time that you spend getting to the end goal that involves other things. And, uh, you know, there's, there's many ways to look at that. There's a, a pretty common meme of, yeah, I'm billing you for the 10 minutes it took me to do this, but I'm also billing you for the 10 years it took me to learn it. Mm -hmm. That's time. That's really valuable, you know, skill building experience. That's why the best lawyers in the firm bill $600 an hour and the new lawyers in the firm bill $200 an hour. But um, when you look at the billing of uh, architects, you know, the numbers are extremely low and assigning a dollar value is important, but also just assigning a desired profit. I think what architects do often is they sort of cover the bases and they don't, because of this, you know, uh, thing that's bred into you in school where you think, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing this to get the resulting building. I'm doing this to get the resulting project for my portfolio. I'm doing this to get the experience. Even at a macro level in an architecture business, many of them are, are not building in these huge operating margins. Um, you know, they're not building in like large amounts of profit. And if they're doing it, they're not doing it with overtime in mind. Mm. Um, there was a really recent discussion um, that uh, you know came up uh, through a New York Times article that you know many of the employees at a uh, firm in New York are thinking about joining uh, a union. Now it's a it's a non-architectural union, right? I, I believe yeah. uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's uh, machinists and I can't remember if it's aerospace or aeronautics workers, or there's some a couple of other industries involved, but um, the, the idea here that um, in unionizing, what you're doing is looking to adjacent professions for a sort of gut check in a way on how we value our time and how we value not just the time that our project managers say we're going to need, but also the time that we end up spending beyond that uh, is, is incredibly important. I would only just finish this by saying, as an anecdote, we had a, an architecture student um, 
as a client who is going into uh, illustration. And he's a, just a phenomenal illustrator, just a fantastic artist. And um, I know that contract work is hard, but it's more conceptual when you think of it just as art and not as architecture. So let's say you're doing a piece of art. Um, you know, his gut instinct was, well, this is the, the hourly that I need to cover my rent. You know, so this mm -hmm. is what I, I'll bill. Um, and I said, okay, but how long is it really going to take you to do that? And he said, well, I mean, the actual art, you know, it, it, it depends. I'm pretty fast. You know, I could do these pieces in five to 10 hours. I said, okay, well, at that hourly, you really think like $200 a piece is valuable? If I came to it from the other side and said, uh, you know, the, the design here was kind of for these conceptual um, spaces that would be physically built that, you know, people inhabit for parties and for, you know, club experiences and things like that. And I said, if, if from the other side, I came and said, we've got a budget of $5,000 per room, wouldn't that seem reasonable? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, well then why wouldn't you ask for $5,000 per room, you know, wow. per piece of art or so to speak. Right. And, and the order of magnitude jump there is really hard when you look at it in terms of hourly, because for mm -hmm. him, that was going up, you know, above a hundred dollars an hour, which to some, you know, architects is absurd, but, um, you know, Aaron and I have very, uh, open pricing on our website. And I think to a lot of people, um, the numbers that we charge are, are quite high. Um, and of course, you know, we try and accommodate, uh, people who are unemployed, obviously, which means there's, you know, there has to be some, some accommodation there or young students. But at the end of the day, um, it's not just the one hour that Aaron and I sit down with that client for. It's everything that goes into it. It's all of the, the work that we do with our networks and connections and, you know, looking for roles and, and bringing that experience to the table that mm -hmm. we've, you know, helped so many people to make this, this change. Um, and so I don't in any way feel, feel bad about assigning high value to an hour of time. I wish we could do it in a non-hourly way, but if you have to do that, then you have to consider all the factors and, and architects just are not good at that. Flat. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's just, um, it's a matter of raising awareness and educating people that within what's really behind that one hour or what's really behind, what's really what, like the time, how we're really being spent I think it's just raising awareness and making people um, more aware of that. Ideal, I, would, that. I would just also add, it's not our responsibility as architects to do that. And I think we take that on. I think we say mm. like, oh, we have to educate the client. Like we have to, you know, sell ourselves. Honestly, people are like, there is, there is an inherent price in the market that people are willing to pay. And you know, there are clients who should just be working with developers and taking, you know, the cheapest um, possible building. And there are clients who should be coming to architects. And I think price is a really good way of differentiating that. And instead, architects drop their prices to be able to get whatever project comes through the door. Mm. Right. And I, I mean, that's been a sort of categorical race to the bottom, right, since the 70s. And I think we've, as a uh, the next generation of architects, because no one on this call was a practicing architect at that time, we've inherited that problem. I would say, though, that while it's not always the individual architect's responsibility, it is the responsibility of the discipline to be more tuned into society, 
Mm. Um, and what society needs and what we do and what we value of what we do versus, you know, what we need to be doing. I can't think of the, I can't put a number to the amount of times, and this is not a novel idea and this is not my own idea, but I can't tell you how many times people have said to me who are not architects, I have no idea what you do. I get that buildings exist and, and I think of blueprints, which again, I've actually never seen blueprints, right? <laughs> um, but you know, they have no idea what goes into the, the process of design a, designing a building. They have no idea the role often that an architect plays in managing complexities and consultants with you know, much more experience and expertise than they have, right? So it is our job and it's our responsibility to be able to understand what we do put it into layman's terms, and then advocate for that value. And again, I go back to this idea of inefficiency, because if you're not from the start understanding the value that you bring to something and the value of your ideas, because even in school when your ideas might be crappy or they start off crappy and you, you toil over them and they get kind of good, you need to be able to isolate, understand, and appreciate the value of what you can do and what you have done, and then understand what you need to do to bring everything else up to that level, right? And then in order to do that, you then need to know, and we practice this all the time in architecture school, whenever you get up to give a crit or to have a crit, right? You need to be able to convey that value. And one of the lessons I learned very early on is that you can be very good if you don't know how to communicate both visually and also mm -hmm. audibly, you're screwed. Right? So the people that did well were not necessarily always the best designers, especially early on. The people that did well were the people who were able to communicate and convince people that their ideas had value, whether or not they inherently had value or I agreed that they had value. Right, So I think one of the problems that we have is that we reward people who work incredibly hard and who get good output. We don't criticize the potential inefficiencies by which they, they, they came to get them, right? And we give them whatever they're willing to accept. And then we don't teach them that their level of acceptance should be much higher. Mm. So many levels yeah. of efficiency. <laughs> you are listening to Design to Connect. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be right back. So many, so many, many issues in architecture. Like, <laughs> I don't know if we if we start if we can ever finish with with all the issues that really exist in the world of architecture. And I think so much of it also goes to the to the idea of process and product that we always look at the like the product and not how the product is being produced, not both in the sense that what the people who are producing it are going through to produce it and actually what things are being sacrificed uh, for this, let's say, for this product to, to happen at the end. And I think one thing that can be somehow related to that uh, is uh, the idea of the architects and their titles. That I think for us uh, architects, we really like to associate ourselves and we are so fixated on, on keeping the title and uh, like yeah it is it gives us so much pride to call ourselves architects that we really don't think about again that process of what my daily life is looking like is it the type of life that I want to have or we sometimes go uh, under like we put a lot of unwanted or 
not needed pressure on on ourselves just to keep that title you know to again have that last product i'm an architect and uh, so i think letting go of the title is really really difficult for us and something that was really interesting uh in in uh, jake's let's say journey for us was that he started to call himself uh an ex-architect and uh <laughs> as much as I know that how much hard it is for me to, I don't know, as you were saying before, for, for an architect to call themselves a graphic designer. And, you know, it seems there's so much pride with this word that we, we don't want to lose it. So it was really interesting for us. And um, we wanted to ask you, how did you deal with this idea of disassociating yourself with the term architecture? And what led you to this decision? And uh, why did you feel that this is a correct path for you? Because I think this might be something that maybe so many of us are, are feeling, but not we don't just have the courage, you know, to say it out loud because, you know, you're an architect. Why do you want to lose that title? Uh, so, yeah, if you could <laughs> let us know a bit more. <laughs> sure. I have to chuckle a little bit because um, I have heard others use uh, the term either ex-architect or my, my favorite is recovering architect, you know, as if it, it is some sort of like illicit drug or addiction. Um, no, I, you know, I arrived to that, I think, from this sort of lens of uh, being, I don't want to say, you know, hurt by architecture, but by being so disillusioned and so sort of caught off guard. Um, we did this exercise in our professional practice class where we we drew these life graphs and sort of charted what our trajectory would be. And of course, at the time, as a as a fourth or fifth year undergraduate architect, I thought I'm going to be either you know a tenure track professor in architecture, or I'm going to go work at some uh, you know. Uh, at the time, I was I was very obsessed with a, a small boutique firm in Boston, or. Um, you know, that I'm, I'm then going to open my own practice and become a star architect and win the Pritzker. And, and so the swing to the other side, of course, seemed so dramatic that I felt like it was uh, a divorce in some way, that I was, you know, now divorcing myself from architecture. But, it, you know, in part, it's also because I, I tend to deal uh, with challenges um, through the lens of humor. And I think that it is such a relatable thing to say to an architect um, because every architect has thought about, has had that burnout day where they've thought about leaving. And uh, in a way, it also gives non-architects the, the luxury of sort of asking, you know, oh, well, what do you, what do you do? Um, because when I say I'm an ex-architect, I then have the the opportunity to say, well, I use all of my skills from architecture, my 3D modeling, visualization, manufacturing, you know, and and I just do that, but in another industry, in footwear. And some people have a very difficult time wrapping their heads around it, but most architects really understand it quite quickly. And in fact, a, a very good um, friend of ours and, and former professor uh, that Aaron and I had in school uh, when I saw him back on Cornell's campus and said, hey, uh, you know, guess what I'm doing? I'm I'm making shoes. And he said, oh, well, those are just houses for feet. 
and just he just walked away. And I thought, well, that's what an elegant way to put it. It's you know, it is a product. It's for a human. It's of a, a different scale, but um, certainly there is, you know, the same kind of love of process that goes into it. So I have also found that it is incredibly beneficial uh, because when I start a conversation that way, it immediately removes the stigma that architects have about talking about anything other than architecture. Mm -hmm. And so when I meet an architect and I say, oh, I'm an, I, you know, I'm also an architect, well, ex-architect, and that's usually how I deliver it. They go, oh, you know, I've thought about X, Y, Z. I've thought about leaving. I, I, oh, I have a friend who did that. It seems like a really interesting pathway. And it allows them to say like, oh, it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. If I leave architecture, I can be everything that I am now and not have or I guess have to spend, you know, $500 a year registering that license or, you know, doing these things, I can still produce the things that I want. Um, and that was the big criteria for me when I left was I still wanted to create things. Very nice. Yeah, I think, I think it's really important what, what you, you are saying. And I think it's important that we remind ourselves that we should maybe focus on what we can do with our skills in a way that serving ourselves and the society rather than I don't know being fixated so much on a title and a lifestyle that we neither enjoy or we can be our best selves in you know so I think we, we really need to question ourselves when when it comes to staying in the industry or finding uh, other ways of using this creativity yeah. well it's also I think trusting yourself Right. So Jake and I say this fairly often to our clients. Um, and I say it to myself fairly frequently. Your career is a design problem. Trust mm. the skills that you have and recognize. I mean, we started this conversation by talking about, you know, rebelling against the traditional path. And, you know, Jake's title of, of ex-architect or recovering architect is is a punchy way to 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 introduce his his path. Right, um, which is nonlinear, as as all of ours are. Right, I don't know anyone who's really, at least in the modern world, followed what you thought you were going to do, whether you're an architect or not, when you went to college. Right, um, like I said, I went to college when I was 17. I didn't know what I was doing. Right, so I think at some point, trusting the process, removing yourself just a little bit, and saying, I have been able to design theoretical projects and, and learn coding languages and complex software, I can figure out what I like and what I bring to the world and how to, you know, find a use for that. I am a bit of the opposite of Jake in the sense that I tenaciously chased the title of architect and mm -hmm. I wanted it and I do have it now. And my goal with it is not to now fall back and say, okay, I have it. I'm going to go back to what I thought an architect was when I was, you know, a kid, aside from the fact that I'm having to be wearing a black sweater at the moment, for me, it's redefine what it means to be an architect, right? And part of it is what we do without of architecture, because for us, yes, it is a way to get out of the profession, but it's also what do you get out of architecture? What do you get out of the process that you've gone through, both as an education, uh, as well as in the working world, which is an, ed an education in and of itself, and for me, the story about like, those are just houses for feet, 
I am obsessed with the way that architects think. Mm. Right. And the fact that someone can come up so quickly with that sort of an answer to be both witty, true, and also somehow both validate Jake's career experience and also bring a colorful sort of lens to it. I, I love that. I love hanging out and speaking with other architects or people who are you know adjacent to this field about how we see the world. Mm. That being said, I don't think we turn that enough into itself onto the profession and say, how do we do this better? Because that has to be done collectively. And individually, you can design your own career. But collectively, if we don't choose to design the profession, we're screwed. And mm -hmm. I think that's what we're seeing, right? So for us, you know, obviously, we wear, we wear different hats. But we, we fall under the same ethos of there's so much that can be done with your way of thinking, whether you stay traditionally in the field or not. How are you going to make a disimpact? How are you going to make an impact? How are you going to make decisions and, and choices and find ways to make yourself happy and also make, you know, the world a better place? Because I don't think anyone becomes an architect because they think they're going to make, you know, massive amounts of money. They become an architect because they want to good, put good things into the world, right? And those can come in the forms of shoes, software, houses, spaceships, I don't know. So... For me, it's what do you get out of architecture and how do you use the skills you've learned and crafted to design to make your world and the rest of the world a better place? I love that. I love the dynamics of, of the both of you because it, again, emphasizing the importance of understanding that there's no, there isn't just one way of doing things, you know, like there's opposites, opposite opinions and opposite way of dealing with a problem but it's just understanding one another and trying to figure a common ground for finding a solution. And I think that's what we're, in my perspective, we're missing also in our industry because we're also just fixated on one solution. And one thing you said, Erin, that I'm interested to know more about your thoughts about is that you touched based on the value of communication and how communicating your idea and selling your idea is so important. And I feel based on my experience and the people that I know of and have conversations with that we were never really taught in school. And again, I don't know if this is something that someone is born with, like the, they're born with having great conversational skills or communication skills, or this is something that we should be taught in school on how to really sell your idea and your concept. And because we are in a very design heavy based industry, we have to sell our ideas so therefore, we have to have communication skills. Do you feel that your MBA played a role in helping you shape your career path in that respect, in like under like creating your um, module for your studio, for the Matter Studio, or do you feel that this is something that was embedded in you as a character, and if this is something that we start, we need to start implementing in our education? like in our educational system to improve? I mean, I think it's a, it's a great question. It's, it almost comes back to this idea of like nature versus nurture. Are you born with it or do you learn it? Mm. I do think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think you do learn it in architecture school, but not overtly. It's not like you take a class or at least I didn't take a class on public speaking. I was terrified of it actually when I went to architecture school and I did not realize that like mm. crits were gonna take the place of exams, but I was kind of happy about it because I was not a very good test taker. Um, I think you learn by example, whether you are presented with good or bad examples. And the one thing I learned very quickly in architecture school was the value of charisma. Mm. 
the professors who resonated with me were in one way or another quirky or charismatic, and I was interested in what they had to say. And I was, you know, interested in their opinions, right? Because mm-hmm. architecture school is just the tossing around of lots of opinions, except in like building technology and structures, in which case there's math and that's undeniable. That being said, the MBA was massively important, I think in teaching me and teaching us, because Jake also went through the program, all the things you should learn in architecture school about how you interface with the world around you in the society that we live in, that it just didn't, right? One of those things was not just communication, but uh, organizational behavior, understanding how teams work. Um, Since architecture is such a team-based endeavor, regardless of the history we wanna paint for ourselves or has been painted for us. Um, The understanding of Occam's razor and cutting down to just what is it that people, these people are asking for, meaning your clients, or in the case of when you're in school, your professor, the brief. You know, school is very much about you. And to some extent, it should be. I do agree with that. But in order to really have a successful project, it can't just be about you and your ideas, whether it's architecture or not. It has to be mm-hmm. about what the needs of the world and the client and, and the brief are, right? So the other thing that I found incredibly useful, and I... Well, I say this all the time in my professional practice class, but before I, what led me to do the MBA was I took a class in negotiation during my graduate degree. And I worked with some kids at the business school as a design consultant. And I learned two things. One, I learned how when people are studying business, this is how they interface with designers and this is what they need from me. And in the negotiation course, I learned how to listen and try to understand what people are actually communicating to you when they respond to what you've shown them, right? Whereas before in architecture school, you would toil or I would toil. Um, I actually got to a point where I was not digesting what was said to me during a review. Again, I was terrified of public speaking. Mm -hmm. That's probably reason number one. I was also sleep deprived. And to some extent, I think when you're giving a presentation, there's a bunch of adrenaline running that you're only picking up on the criticism that you know you're bracing for, right? And you're you're just hoping for a compliment, which means you're not processing information. <laughs> so I got to a point where I recorded all of my reviews. Wow. I actually recorded some of my desk crits and talk about inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. I'm the worst at it because I would go back and I would listen, which was utterly painful. But I learned one, when I was a blithering idiot that made no sense. <laughs> and two, I realized how much I missed when people were speaking to me about what they were actually saying. Mm. What did my professor actually want? What did this crit who I had no idea who they were, where they came from, but they said something insightful that I couldn't remember. How does that impact what I do next? And I've since gotten better at it. Um, I don't need to record every single interaction that I have, but the class on negotiation really taught me to understand how you look for people's positions and people's Mm. takes on things. And that led me to the MBA and then I think just being obsessed with people who designed businesses. Um, Both Jake and I ended up working for startups at various stages in our career. And I still work with a lot of startups as clients. And I love talking to people who build and design businesses. And I see 
a really amazing alignment between that and what we learn as architects. And I think that's what Jake and I try to bring to out of architecture in the sense of designing your own career. And some of that is working with clients who are starting their own businesses and trying to help them with that. But often it's, again, understanding your career as a design problem, which has business implications, unless you are one of those, you know, those people who does not need to necessarily work for a living. But even if that is the case, nothing and no one should subsidize our profession. It has value in and of itself. So even if, you know, you don't need to, to you know, pay, pay yourself, you should, and you should pay your people and all of these wonderful things. So the business of life is something that you need to um, be able to, to navigate and architecture school, most school, I don't think teaches you that. And the MBA was, I think everyone should be forced. Everyone should take business courses. Mm -hmm. Everyone should take fitness courses and courses in nutrition. That's how I feel. I, I feel like I went and got massively overeducated and I still don't know, you know, what I should be eating on a daily basis to, to, to make <laughs> live a long and happy and healthy life. Yeah. I, I, I love everything you said. It's, it's very true. It's like, we are a very heavy collaborative industry, but yet we don't know how to collaborate with one another because we don't have those um, communication skills. We're very individual, individualistic and very tied to our ideas that we forget how to listen. And I've caught myself so many times doing that. So I'm glad that you said that as well. It gives me like ease to know that, you know, I'm aware of it, but I'm going to work. I'm like working on it. So good to know. It's also, it's not a, it's not something that hasn't been studied. Mm -hmm. Like organizational behavior is a, is a discipline. I think that what, what killed me or what I found so incredibly useful about it was I remember when I was getting my MBA, I was also working at the same time. And I was going through the module of, of team dynamics and manager dynamics and communication styles between managers. And to some extent, it's in the architect's handbook of professional practice, but it's also just not. And I had an awful manager at the time. And I remember going home you know, at night and studying for this module within organizational behavior and then going into the office and being like, this is what you're doing. This is what I'm doing in response to what you're doing. And this is how it's affecting the work output. And oh my God, I see the train headed for the, you know, to, for the derailment. And it's not my, it was not my manager's fault mm. necessarily. Architects are promoted based on their design ability, not on their ability to manage people. And I firmly believe you are promoted to the exact job that you cannot do. You're not going to go anywhere further than the job that you cap out at that you're just not very good at. And unfortunately in corporate America and architecture is not, um, not exempt from this, that's often middle management. Mm. And if you can't teach people how to be good managers to mitigate both up and down, back to inefficiency, but you're dead in the water. And we have countless stories of that happening with, um, with our clients, with ourselves, with our friends, and um, how that leads to, to burnout because you're spinning your wheels and, and unable to communicate and unable to meet expectations, whether they're realistic or not. Yes. I agree more. Is it, I completely agree. I think, and you, you were able to to see that, like to see these inefficiencies because you were exposed, maybe also to the business school. So, I think because of the amount of the experiences that you and Jake both had, both in architecture industries and maybe other industries, you were able to gain this, let's say, bird view of. Uh, what the issues actually are and how we can address it. 
And we were thinking with Hadil that with over-specialization that is happening now in architecture at, as it is happening in any other industry, uh, we are, every day we are having fewer and fewer people who are, let's say, exposed to these many different experiences. And so we have fewer people that have this holistic view that can say that, okay, that can see the industry in a holistic way that where it is and where it is going and where it needs to be going, actually. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, but so we, we wanted to uh, ask you about that. What do you think? Do you think that dividing the professionals in architecture into architectural technologies, to drafters, to BIM specialists, to all these like little, little sectors, can this make us lose the, let's say, the wide perspective on what the architectural issues are, or better, how can we balance that becoming specialized and also not lose this bird view that can help us, you know, uh, to to navigate our way as an as an industry. Erin, I can jump in here, I guess, with my complex non-answer, which is, um, I, you know. I'm not sure that over-specialization is the problem. Mm. Uh, it is an interesting um, opportunity, I think, because in architecture, with very little exception, uh, I don't see a lot of outsiders coming in or non-architecturally educated individuals. And what I do see in other industries um, or uh, you know, where I work currently is people come from every industry, you know, and they're specialized maybe in finance, but they're coming from not just a bank. Maybe they're coming from uh, doing finance for, um, you know, another company in sportswear. Maybe they're coming from finance from, you know, business or consulting or uh, some other industry. Maybe it's healthcare. And they have a, a wide variety of experiences and an understanding of how other systems work. And what we do in architecture is we reward people who have only used the same system. You know, they've only had this sort of one experience. And that, you know, uh, inbreeding, so to speak, creates, uh, you know, and amplifies problems, right? Like you you know, you're not going very far outside the family tree, like eventually something's got to give. Um, and I really just, you know, would say that when you create specialized positions, you do also create opportunities for people from other industries to come in. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for a computational designer, maybe that person is coming from automotive, right? Maybe they move from one of the new EV companies to a really strong architecture firm, and they're bringing insight from what they've been doing in another industry. And if we could muster the courage to pay people the same that other industries do, we would benefit from that influx of knowledge. Um, you know, in the same way that I think BIM managers are really spectacular people, I also think that um, a very strong product manager from, uh, you know, a technical company or tech industry could move into an architecture firm and really hone in on 
how the systems are operating or not. And then we could have product managers who go to the sort of specialists and or work alongside BIM managers that then are able to create better network systems, more efficient use of information and people's time. Um, I also think it's the responsibility though of schools to allow for and create that sort of breadth of knowledge. And, and Aaron and I were both very fortunate in being able to not just get one degree, not just get two degrees, but to have three varied experiences over you know something like eight years. That is a, a huge luxury that not everyone has. And certainly mm -hmm. we, we both you know, worked through those experiences and did all, you know, had many jobs at one time, but um, it is still a privilege. I do think that architecture schools should be a little less insular and should be more welcoming and create an environment where at least one or two semesters, studio is at a different time, or there is no studio, or you have this opportunity to go and take the one class that you've not been able to take, whether it's in the business school or in the school of hospitality, as was quite common for us, um, because you learn so much. And I've seen many architects pick up those communication skills, not from communicating with other architects and sharing that same language, but having to translate to another industry or translate to another classmate or peer who's has no idea what we do. And just as Aaron had that experience in the business school, I think, um, you know, people who leave traditional architecture uh, immediately can see the way in which they were not able to tell that story, you know, mm -hmm. and then by having that realization, even just once, um, I think you have a much broader perspective on on the value that you bring, but also uh, on what's missing and how to improve. And if we could create opportunities for people to leave architecture and come back, that would probably be the most ideal scenario. But it's very common to hear that, oh, that never happens. And the reason it doesn't happen is, is because of, I think, in many ways, culture and working conditions. So. Well, and just, and just pay, right? Mm. You know, if you leave architecture and you, you can have a, you know, inflated or not inflated, but a, a matched value of a six-figure salary that you're just not going to be able to get in, in architecture. There's no fundamental reason for you to go back except passion, right? Um, I also think, you know, if you take a more macro view, um, every industry right now is, is changing, at least the ones that will still exist in 10 years, right? Just because that's the rate of change and globalization yeah. in the world. And architecture is this interesting thing or the architecture, engineering, and construction industry. So let's say the building industry is this interesting thing because it just moves very slowly, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, we are 10 years behind what technology is probably at, and it will take time to bring that technology in, but that technology is coming. Finding better ways, and I don't know why, but inefficiency seems to be my word of the day. Finding better ways to use technology and leverage technology to treat your people better, to make better projects to make safer projects, not just for your the people who are working on them, but the people who are actually constructing and constructing them and living in them, right? And safer projects for the planet. All of that is going to be aided by technology. And I think the mandate would be for the larger firms who do the work that 
really um, is ripe for that level of disruption or will be happening, they need to understand how best to integrate technology and how best to use human capital to stay ahead of that process because someone else will come in and, and do it if we mm -hmm. don't. Um, there will be, you know, whether it's Elon Musk or someone just like him coming in to say like, this is how we're going to do this now. And, you know, there will be failures, I'm sure, but technology is, is coming. It's already here to some extent. Um, I think what bothers me, and this goes back to what Jake was saying about schools, is that for the students who are really interested in that, the only thing they can do often is join a research group on campus where you're really only working under one professor and their sort of research ideology, which has a multitude of, you know, benefits and, and whatnot. However, it's still very insular unless somehow that research group is, is cross-referenced across so many different departments. And even then, if that's the case, unless you're staying for five years to get a PhD in it, it's very often not the fact that you can take that and then go immediately use it in the new world, or sorry, in the real world. So you need companies that are looking to absorb those people that are interested in that sort of thing. And Jake and I have a, a fantastic mentor um, who's an engineer in the UK who's, who tries to do that. He tries to pick up talent and bring them into his office. And he runs a business in such a way that he has enough to have an R&D side of his business that he can invest in new technologies. And I think I always found that to be fascinating because in his mind, it's, I am going to value the work that I do and the people that work for me in such a way that I can then provide this little R&D playground for them to make strides for the architecture, engineering, construction industry for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that will outlive him, right? And to me, that's staying ahead of the curve. That's the only person I know who's doing that. <laughs> um, and I, I would hope, I would wish that there were, you know, 10 more, 100 more. Yeah, honestly, I, I like everything that you said, I always think of and it, I, it gets me worried so much because I feel like our industry right now is overly worked. We're very underly staffed. And again, I'm, maybe I'm just talking from my experience with the firms I've been joined here in Toronto. I don't know how it's elsewhere. So it's always based on my experience. Um, and I feel like because we're very understaffed, we're under so much pressure no one is taking the initiative and the lead to do things like that. And no one is really looking for the talents that's already existent within the office. There, it's just been, you know, like overlooked. And I feel that we we're having a problem with the hierarchy idea and concept in offices and architectural offices that I feel that junior staffs are always looked at as drafters. And they're always looked at as people that are just gonna do the jobs instead of us really connecting with all, all, all kind of levels, trying to understand the ideas and the concepts that can be brought to the table to enhance that. Um, and I would like to get your ex perspective on that. Do you feel that years of experience versus, I don't know what other word I can use for, for to explain what I'm really trying to get to, but like, you know, like, someone that's been in the industry for 10 years of experience versus someone that just got out of school, but also has some fresh ideas. Do you feel that really that is what really matters in our industry? Like how many years you've been in the profession? And do I think we have it's over, sorry. 
No, I think it's overemphasized. It's overemphasized and overvalued the number of years you have in the profession. That being said, you don't know what you don't know. Um, when you leave school and you enter the, the working world, it's designed in such a way, you know, our cadence in school and then practice that you do essentially enter another education, right? It, it, there's just too much to learn in school in order to become a licensed architect, at least in our modules in the United States, that if that's your goal, you do have to keep, you have to work, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I do think, however, time for some reason, paying your dues or whatever you want to call it is, is overvalued. Um, I was, or Jake and I were both actually really fortunate enough to learn this lesson really early on at the end of our second year in college by the Dean of our school at the time, who I, I still don't actually didn't really like. However, he said something to me that I will never, or to Jake actually, and I happen to be in the room that I will never forget, which is we were really upset with the decision the administration had made to fire our mentor. Um, it was the guy who ran the shop and was teaching us everything about making and Jake and I both love making. And we demanded a meeting with the administration to understand why this decision was made. And so we went into this meeting and, um, you know, we were talking back and forth, but clearly we were, uh, everyone's guard was up, right? And at one point, I think Jake got frustrated. I don't remember exactly what was said. Um, but Jake said something along the lines of, I know you think I'm just, you know, a second year and I don't know what I'm talking about, but I think you're really not understanding the value that this person brings to my education and the education of everyone else here at this school. Mm -hmm. And the dean turned to him and said, look, I understand that I am much older than you. I understand that I am in a much higher position of power. I am the dean. You're a second year student. I have more experiences than you. That is true. But you might have better ones. So I am here to listen. Yeah. And as much as I didn't necessarily like that guy, mm -hmm. I gained a massive amount of respect for him that day. Because I think if you're going to be a leader of either a school or a team or a McDonald's, if you can't listen to your people and try to suss out the value at every level and the experiences that are useful at every level, you're doing a disservice, not just to the output, but to yourself and your team, right? So I think the mark of a good leader, a good manager, a good human being is someone that is really seeking to, to learn and engage with everyone around them. I think too much people put, at least in the field of architecture, an emphasis on age and the amount of years you have in the business. Now, often that means you've had a lot of really good experiences, but that doesn't mean you don't have, you know, young talent or newer talent that has just as good of experience, but maybe isn't as good at speaking about it, or mm -hmm. maybe doesn't look like someone you think often would have good experience um, or looks different than you or communicates different than you. Um, and that goes back to communication and understanding different cultural aspects, understanding how to get you know, get the best out of the people working for you. And often that's treating them humanely and giving them every opportunity to exceed and learning how to listen and all these different learning styles and knowing that about yourself. You are listening to Design to Connect. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be right back. Uh, so thank you. Thank you uh, so much, Erin, for, for all that you have said. Um, I think people like you and Jake really gives us uh, the push for for seeing something out of the box and you know get the courage 
to to see things in different ways. Um, so mentioning that, we we really wanted to ask you about uh, the firm, uh, the consultation firm that uh, uh, you have out of architecture. And uh, what was the story behind that? And what made you choose this name for it? And uh, what is it that you're trying uh, to do throughout of architecture? Well, we started this business now almost four years ago, and, and it really is uh, sort of a natural progression from a lot of the experiences that we've elaborated on. I think there are many problems with the profession, but there were so many things that we just absolutely adore about architecture and that we want to see brought into other industries that we want to see, uh, you know, people's creative ability used 100% that we want to see them rewarded for it and, and feel passionate about the work that they get to do. Um, it, you know, it's funny to think that like maybe we were our first clients in that way that we, you know, did this for ourselves, but we had a lot of conversations with, uh, with friends and people that had reached out and it sort of came to a head um, partly because Aaron was beginning to teach these professional practice classes in a way that acknowledged some of the, the issues in the profession. And there were questions about, well, you know, what if I don't want to be an architect? You know, what if I don't want to do this? And from my side, it was uh, certainly accentuated by the fact that I had just started at Adidas and I had numerous peers and people that I had never met reach out and say, why why would they hire an architect? You know, like what, are you designing retail? Are you, you know, are you designing, you know, building spaces? And, you know, to explain that I was able to bring my portfolio of models and work and, you know, design ideas into a room and get an innovation role, you know, that has to do with manufacturing and 3D modeling. I just was so shocked that no one else had had thought of it, you know, and, and certainly I, I'm not the first one. I mean, absolutely, there are thousands of people who have who have done this. And even some of the very first footwear designers, um, you know, in the US uh, over at Nike are, are architects. They came from the University of Oregon architecture program. They decided they loved footwear. Um, so there's a long history to it. But we started to see this happen more and more. And we decided that you know, more than anything, we had the ability to help. And mm -hmm. that as we started to get more and more demand for it, you know, our desire to help, um, you know, began to sort of come up against this need for dedicated resources, for time, for, you know, setting aside, um, whether it was, you know, funds or personal time or evenings and nights, to, to work on this, it really took the form of a business. And we thought, well, if we're going to tell people that they have value, we better hold ourselves to that. And uh, so we did turn it into a business. And I think um, it, it has grown by leaps and bounds, but especially over the last two years, because of, I think, the the breadth of exposure that people are having in a virtual environment and also because of the very real 
trauma that has happened to every single one of us over the last couple of years. Mm. You know, no matter what side you you feel like you're on, I mean, there you know, no one has felt calm or normal or uh, you know, I think it's it's been troublesome, and it brings to light what do I really want? What do I really enjoy? What, you know, what makes me feel human? And some of those things have a lot to do with architecture. That doesn't mean you get to do them at your firm. Mm. You know, <laughs> some of those things have a lot to do with design and can be found in a number of other places. Um, some of them have nothing to do with design. Some of them are financial. Some of them are work-life balance. Some of them are location. I mean, we've all, you know, had thoughts of going and working from elsewhere in some, you know, absurdly remote island and, and you know, not having to, <laughs> to wear a mask ever, ever again. Um, but I think, you know, those factors, those variables, those are parameters to your career, right, to that problem that we're trying to design around. And it's been really fun to help at this point, you know, we've had hundreds of clients over the last four years, and it's just been wow. uh, an, an absurd pleasure to uh, to get to do that on, you know, on our evenings and mornings, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Wow, thank you. Thank you so Amazing, much. honestly, it gives, like, it, your conversation is just giving me so much, so many things to reflect on um, and think of, and it's very unfortunate that we are coming towards the end of this episode, so we do need to wrap it up. Um, I don't know if Erin, you would have you would have liked to add anything in regards to your journey with Out of Architecture before we wrap up. I think all I will say is that um, the business, as Jake said, came out of us being our first clients, but also being a constant support system for each other, mm -hmm. because this is what we lacked or what we felt like we lacked um, in school and. I think I realize, and also in the profession, I think now I realize as I get older that just the importance of, of mentorship and support, um, both up and down. And I think at, at our very best, that's what we try to do with out of architecture, but also, you know, a lot of times we're talking to people about these bigger questions and problems within, within the profession and you feel paralyzed about like what you can do. And I think the biggest takeaway for me is always just, you know, be nicer to yourself and be nicer to those around you. Mm -hmm. um, and if someone is thinking of doing something new or different or interesting in our, in our school or, or among our classmates, it was sort of shunned. And Jake and I and other close friends that we had at the time, um, you know, we were there for one another and that I think is what carried things through. So at our best, we try to be very good mentors. Um, and at minimum, I think the more people can, can do that and give themselves the flexibility and the understanding and the space to do those things, as well as support those who are trying to do those things, I think would be, would make the profession a lot, a lot better and a lot more diverse. Wow. Amazing. I was going to ask you for your final uh, piece of advice for people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you and go. <laughs> for the people that feel stuck in, um, in a place where they're feeling that they're, you know, like it's just not doing them good. But you just gave it to us. So thank you. <laughs> well, and, and reach out for a chat, you know, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, yeah. we try to chat with as many people as possible. Um, go to our website. You could book 20 minutes with us and, and uh, we'll try to figure it out. <laughs> I, I love that. Thank you. 
honestly, like this is this is very important for us to emphasize how important it is to connect with like-minded people to ease the 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 uh, thinking process that one is going through. And because I feel that our industry, not trying to be negative, I'm just trying to like you know point things out. We do lack mentorships that think outside of the box. So the more that we connect with people like that, the more encouraging and rewarding it will be so thank you like I'm like I'm so I feel like I'm ready to go work right now <laughs> thank you <laughs> mission accomplished yeah. yeah yeah thank you so much and and yeah more than also I mean not yeah, more than mentorship also this idea of collaboration that we we just took an hour and we talked and we just put our ideas together and after this one hour you are I don't know you're full of energy and it's it's crazy i mean we should we should i think be more open to collaborating with each other and just help each other build this industry and like take it to a to a better through a better journey um so mm -hmm. thank you thank you so much uh for for accept, accepting sorry i i think i'm too tired <laughs> it's it's Friday night, so so thank you no so worries. much for uh, accepting our our offer to to this interview and really listening to both of your experience. It has been really empowering uh, to hear, and it's been really inspiring for us. And thank you for being with us, even if we are in so much in the beginning of uh of this journey of this podcast but you have been very open and very supportive uh from the beginning jake you posted you shared our post from the very beginning so we wanted to really thank you for that and uh just before we say goodbye uh we wanted to ask you if you can share with us where we can follow you uh follow your works for your journey of out of architecture if you can just let us know and thank you so much thank you again thank you thank it's you. been it's been an absolute pleasure um you can find us at outofarchitecture.com um we are very active on linkedin as well so our out of architecture page on linkedin and on instagram which is also out of architecture um as well as i mentioned feel free to reach out to us for a chat um we also have a, a sort of open or somewhat open Slack community that we're building, again, to kind of have this uh, this mentorship and this uh, support system be available. So anyone who's interested in being a part of that, um, if you reach out and have a chat with us, we'd be yeah. happy to, to let you in. Very nice. Thank you so much. Jake? That sounds great. No, I have no other plugs. I'm so happy that uh, we had the opportunity to be here. And thank you too so much for, even at the start of this journey, for creating a space for people to talk about uh, ideas and solutions to things that, uh, you know, might, might be keeping us up at night. So I think there's uh, a lot to be said for just allowing these discussions to happen, you know, mm -hmm. even if we don't necessarily intend for them to go one way or another. So thank you to so much, Arazu Hadil. It's been uh, just a pleasure. Likewise. Right. Well, I hope you enjoy the rest of your uh, days and I guess there is your evening because you are the only person that's <laughs> uh, not in like um, in the Western world. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye.